from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Edward Price on April 23, 2018. Edward has started authoring a six-volume set entitled The Divine Curriculum. He's published his first volume entitled Divine Design. Edward explains what inspired him to write this six-volume set and what the reader should expect when reading the first volume and subsequent volumes. He reads two excerpts from Divine Design. Edward is also co-writer and co-producer of the film The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith. It's a documentary film on the epic life of the Bab, who in 1844 declared his messianic mission in Persia. While Christians in the U.S. were awaiting for Jesus to arrive from the sky. Edward talks about the film in the interview. I started the interview by asking Edward where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. I was born to a Jewish family. We were officially conservative Judaism. Neither of my parents were particularly religious or devout, or but we celebrated the Passover Seder. We went to Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah once or twice a year. That was pretty much my family's upbringing. I was taught honesty and belief in God, but God was not a subject of conversation very much in the household. And probably around seven or eight years old, I was sent to Hebrew school twice a week. Temple Emmanuel in Massachusetts. I was bored. It didn't mean anything to me. I had to go from time to time to the Saturday morning prayer services. Honestly, what I remember is sitting in those spaces for a long time and having to stand up and sit down, stand up and sit down. And it was all in Hebrew. And you would think that a Hebrew school would teach you Hebrew, but my Hebrew school never taught me Hebrew. I'm not sure if I ever forgave them for that. But um, (laughs) So we read books in English about the history of religion, the great heroic figures of Jewish faith, which were, those were wonderful stories. As far as the heart of a religion itself, of having any devout belief in God, it was mostly absent. And so that was the condition in which I arrived at my adolescence. When I was 13, you know, the year leading up to being 13, uh, my parents sent me to Hebrew school. So now I'm going to Hebrew school three or four times a week in order to prepare readings for my bar mitzvah, which was scheduled to occur in May of 1967. It was for me a completely empty and meaningless experience. I want to be clear that as I look back on it now, I'm not really saying anything at fault about Judaism itself, which in the years since I've discovered is a wonderful and 
beautiful religion. What I am consciously commenting on is that for some reason, the, my I was unlucky and I got a very depressing and uninteresting spiritual education at this particular temple. So my bar mitzvah day arrived, as I said, in May of 1967. I was not interested in religion and I was only doing it because my parents told me I had to do it. I read my, they call it the Haftorah. It's a part of the Bible that you read on Saturday and it's part of your bar mitzvah initiation. I read my piece and I decided on that very day that as far as I was concerned, this was it for me in religion. I was done with religion. I wanted nothing to do with it. The way the rules were that if you were bar mitzvah, you could decide for yourself whether or not you wanted to continue your religious education. So as soon as I had the freedom to say no, that's exactly what I did. I never set foot in the temple or any religious building. I, I just completely stayed away from religion. And thenceforth, I identified myself as an atheist. Parallel with these unfortunate and sad developments, I was very good in science and I love science. I had heard about things like the theory of evolution and biology in high school. And I was very, very enamored with all of that. So my atheism merged with being totally secularist and into science. I didn't think of it this way at the time, but science took the place where religion psychologically is for most people. And I believe that we were all just highly developed primates. There was nothing more to human beings than our physical existence. And that's how I went all the way through high school. Also, the argumentative type of person, I would say belligerent. And so when I encountered people of religious belief, I actually tried to mock them and put them down. I was not very nice in those days. <laughs> I really, really wasn't. I would make fun of people and they didn't have most of the time a good logical argument. So it was easy for me to defeat them in debates and arguments. And I took a arrogant sort of pleasure in being able to smash up people's religious beliefs. And that's the type of person I was back then. That's the frame of mind I was in when I arrived at the University of Virginia in 1972. I was lucky to be there. It was a great school. And while I was there, I met a Baha'i. My roommate at the dormitory was dating a girl who had a roommate, and her name was Mary. Mary was someone who was really quite brilliant. She was radiant, beautiful. She was very loving and kind. She would listen to my nonsense without getting flustered by it. I found her to be a strange creature because my usual tactics about putting down religion 
had no effect on her at all. So I didn't really understand that at first. We started out our friendship as simply study partners. I had exams that I had to study for. I was uh, taking chemistry at the time. She was an English major. She was a much better student than I was getting A's in English while I was struggling very, very hard with chemistry. So after doing all-nighters, and we actually did study together, we would go off to Denny's restaurant for breakfast before our eight o'clock classes. And that's when our conversations about religion took place for the most part. It was actually several months before she even mentioned to me that she was religiously minded. Eventually, we got into the subject. I would utilize my typical argumentative techniques about why is there so much suffering and why is there so much cruelty in the world? And I had numerous ways of attacking religion back then. Mary would uh, listen. She would not be intimidated or afraid. After I stopped talking, she would say something to me like this. Well, Ed, that's very interesting. I wonder, have you thought about thus and such? Invariably, I had not thought about what she just pointed out. Whatever my flaws were at the time, and I had many, I was still a basically intellectually honest person. I had that going for me. And so when Mary said, have you thought about thus and such, my integrity kicked in. I would actually go and think about it, what she had said. I found out over time that her questions were incisive and penetrating, caused me to think about things in radically new ways. And I discovered that I was not as smart as I thought I had been. And I discovered that she was quite a bit smarter than me. And she knew a lot that I didn't know. And so it was a humbling experience, but not in a humiliating way. She always did everything in the most kind and gentle way. Over a period of months, my mind started to expand into new directions. I began to consider the possibility that spiritual reality actually existed, that we were spiritual beings and that Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, could actually be authentic since the Baha'i faith holds Moses and Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the others in such high esteem. I started to consider that maybe all of these great figures in history had actually been much more important than I realized. So I started to think about things. It all sort of came to a head some months into this discussion. It was like springtime. I came to a point where I realized that Mary was so smart because she was getting really tremendous insights from the writings and teachings of Baha'u'llah. So I started to think, well, maybe I should read read something from this dude. I also started to realize that Baha'u'llah's teachings for humanity really could be something that could solve the problems of humanity, demilitarizing the planet, religion and science being in harmony, teaching people to get rid of their prejudices, independently investigating truth, 
These and many other teachings had meant a great deal to me. So I was, I was starting to be impressed despite myself. Nevertheless, I was still clinging to my belligerent atheism. I boasted to Mary, I said that I had like 27 proofs for the non-existence of God. I used to use that like a baseball bat to beat her up with in our conversations. And finally, one day she said to me, Ed, I heard of these 27 proofs for a long time now. It's time for you to put up or shut up, write them down, show them to me so that we can talk about them. And I said, okay. So I went back to my dorm room that night and I started to write them down. Mary was a brilliant tactician in terms of having discourse with other people because she didn't challenge me on that all the time, right away. She waited a while. So what actually happened was when I sat down to write out these proofs, after I had written one out, I looked at it and I said, well, you know, Mary is going to refute this. So better if I can refute the argument myself and fix it. And so I looked at proof number one, and sure enough, there was the proof. There was the right in front of my nose. There was the flaw. I could see it now. So that's what's wrong with that argument. And so I knew she would demolish that argument. So I went on to number two. And then I went on to number three. And then I went on to number four. I think I made it to number seven. I started to figure out that my proofs for the non-existence of God were not as airtight as I had imagined them to be. But what I realized later, and why I mentioned that Mary was so brilliant as a tactician, was that I was only able to refute my own arguments because of the things I had been learning all along from Mary. On my own information, the arguments seemed fine. But when confronted with the new information that I had been learning from Mary about the oneness of God, about how the prophets are all working together, not enemies of one another, and that sort of thing. When, when I started to incorporate the knowledge that I had been learning from Mary, the flaws in my arguments were much easier to see. And so that's why it was so brilliant of her to wait a little while for me to actually learn some things and then confront me at a little later stage. Anyway, the next day, Mary and I saw each other. I told her what happened, and she didn't gloat. <laughs> she basically smiled at me very lovingly, and she said, okay, fine. So we just continued our friendship from there. But I no longer boasted about having so many proofs for the non-existence of God. The months went on, and it was time for summer break. She introduced me to some of the Baha'i friends, but when it was summer break, it was time for me to go home. And by this time, I was actually thinking about becoming a Baha'i. My parents had come down to Virginia to come and pick me up for summer break. We had one of those big Ford station wagons in those days. My father always mixed family trips with business trips, so we had lots of the his business items in the back of the car and plus my suitcases and everything. And so the three of us, my mom, myself, and my dad, 
were in the front seat. Dad was driving. I had the window. And my mother was in the middle. And we were going down the New Jersey Turnpike. And I just happened to drop in the conversation. I said, oh, and by the way, I've been learning about this thing, the Baha'i faith, and I'm thinking about becoming a Baha'i. It was brutal. I was shocked because I had never really thought of my parents as caring that much about religion. They really surprised me. So that ride home was quite miserable. My father and I started to argue a lot. He was very angry with me. And what I discovered was that they weren't angry with me because of religion. They thought that I would be a traitor to the Jewish people. Given the history of persecution, that kind of sort of makes some sense. But anyhow, that was where their strong emotions were coming from. During that summer, my father tried to get me to speak to various wise people, like his best friend, and he actually even sent me to go speak to the rabbi back home. In both instances, after the so-called inquisitions had been completed, I said, so what do you think I should do? And in both cases, my father's best friend and the rabbi said, well, if you care so much about Baha'i, then you should go ahead and become a Baha'i. And of course, this made my father extremely upset. I was unable to comfort him even when I offered. I had really long hair in those days. And so I I offered to get a haircut, and that was not sufficient to comfort him. He was really upset. So anyway, I made it through the summer. It was a very nasty time. My family and I were arguing all the time. They threatened to disown me. They said that if I became a Baha'i, they would disown me. But my, my father kind of contradicted himself a little bit, too. He's At 18 years old, I had never been anyone who took anything seriously in life. So, And he kind of had a point. So he argued with me and he said, how do we even know that you're going to be interested in being a Baha'i in six months? He said that if you can sustain your interest in Baha'u'llah for six months, he would stop fighting with me about it. And that seemed like a good truce, uh, a good uh, peace offering. So I agreed. And anyhow, they brought me back to Virginia for uh, my second year of college. That year, I had signed up to have an apartment and rather than be in a dormitory. And I had two, two roommates in that apartment. And I arrived in town before they got there. So I was in the apartment alone. I reached out to Mary and told her I was back in town and she had a car. It was like 11 o'clock at night when she got off of work and she came over to my apartment to say hi. She said to me, how's everything going? Well, we had been writing letters all summer anyway, but I told her the latest news and how things were going between me and the family and how upsetting everything had been. I said, but the good news is my father and I worked out a deal. So she said, what's that? I said, well, we decided that we were going to test Baha'u'llah to see if he could hold my interest for six months. And then if after six months I was still interested, uh, dad's not going to fight it. Suddenly, Mary's appearance became very, very grave and serious. I had never seen this look in her eye before. 
she became very serious and she said to me, Ed, you can do whatever you like, but know this, you don't test Baha'u'llah, Baha'u'llah tests you. And then she got up out of her chair and she was out the door before I could muster any sort of a reply. So there I was in my apartment facing a inner struggle. By this point, I did believe in Baha'u'llah as God's messenger for today. I was putting him to the test. How do you put the messenger of God to the test? It was exactly as she said it was, that the roles are reversed. So I tried to pray about it, and hours went by. In my heart, I was in tremendous anguish. Because on the one hand, I had made what I thought was a sensible deal with my father. And then at the same time, I was confronted with this transcendent spiritual reality. And I believed my parents when they said that they were going to disown me. That's how the hours went by. I tried to go to bed and I couldn't sleep. It was around two o'clock in the morning and I reached a decision. And it was simply that I felt I would never have a good night's sleep ever again unless I became a Baha'i immediately. I know that doesn't sound particularly logical or rational, but that's the way I experienced it subjectively. I put my clothes on and I walked the half a mile from my apartment to where Mary's dormitory was located. I was not supposed to be in that part of the dormitory because it was the girls section. I knocked on Mary's door. She was still awake with some friends. She came out, met me in the hallway and I said, I need to become a Baha'i and I need to do it now. And it so happened that her roommate was going through a sorority initiation. And for some reason, even to this day, I don't know why, she needed us to go buy her some cigarettes. So we went in her car, drove to Kmart, Mary went in store, got the cigarettes, and then out of her glove box, she pulled out what we call a declaration card. It's a form we fill out and we state on the form that we believe in Baha'u'llah and wish to follow his laws and teachings. In the parking lot of Kmart at 2.30 in the morning, I signed my declaration card and I became a Baha'i. I'm speaking with Edward Price, author of the book, The Divine Curriculum, Divine Design, and also co-producer and co-writer of the film, The Gate. Edward, why don't we first talk about your book, The Divine Curriculum, Divine Design. Am I saying it right? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And it's also got uh, the designation volume one, because it's actually part of a six-volume series, which is still in progress. So, Edward, why don't you tell me what inspired you to begin writing this? One of the central teachings of the Baha'i faith is that there's but one God. It's the same God for everyone, that this God sends divine educators or messengers to humanity from time to time throughout history, approximately every 500 to 1,000 years. These divine educators, these messengers, are great figures that have been the source of human civilization. We're talking about not just a guru or some really wonderful person, but we're talking about 
historic epochal figures like Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha. These are figures around whom entire civilizations are born. They are the guides and directors of human history. And in the Baha'i faith, we believe that these divine messengers have all been sent to humanity at these different times and different places from the same single God, infinite, unknowable, but loving and personal God who created humanity and cares about humanity and wishes to educate humanity through these teachers. So this is a teaching that we, that we call progressive revelation, referring to the fact that God's teachings are not merely repeated from age to age, but they progress and develop from one age to the next. I had been a Baha'i for 35 some years approximately, and I thought we could benefit by having a book which studied in depth the mission of Baha'u'llah, the most recent of God's messengers, and the mission of all of the messengers of God under one framework. The framework that I'm using in my book is the divine curriculum, that all of creation is a classroom and that these great messengers of God educators, we call them also manifestations of God, are the teachers in the school of creation, the school of God. So I thought that it would be a good thing for the Baha'is of the world and for the peoples of the world to have a discussion of how all of these messengers are really so incredibly interconnected with one another. I know that the followers of the different religions like to separate and divide according to religions, but the original intent of religion is not to divide, but to unite. And the divine messengers were all in harmony with one another. Moses appreciated Abraham, Jesus honored Moses, Muhammad extolled Jesus and, and Abraham and Moses and so forth. And Baha'u'llah and the Bab, the two most recent messengers, all extolled and praised and honored the messengers of God that have come before. I thought this would be an important service that I could render. So I began work on it thinking that it would only take a year or two for me to do it. But in fact, it took eight years to do it. And the project actually is still underway. I'm still working on it to get the remaining five volumes published. So that's what inspired me to do this book. And it's, it's been a truly labor of love. So I'm speaking with Edward Price, author of the six-volume set called The Divine Curriculum. We're talking about his book. And volume one is called Divine Design. So, Ed, what does this volume cover and what would folks look forward to with the other five? The idea of divine design is to go into some significant detail about how the whole structure of what we call progressive revelation actually works. The players in this story are discussed. I have information here on the divine educators that are what is commonly understood as the Abrahamic lineage. 
through my life, I've studied the Abrahamic figures quite a bit. I tell the story of Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, the Bab, and Baha'u'llah. I discuss their mission and teachings. I discuss kind of what happens to their religions after each of them. And I discuss their tremendous stature and contribution to civilization. What's interesting here is nowadays, if you pick up a book on religion at random, usually you encounter what I might refer to as a partisan point of view, which is whatever point of view the author is, whether they're Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, they come from the point of view is that their guy is better than all the other guys, and they wish to demonstrate or explain the superiority of the one that they believe in compared with all of the others. In my book, to the extent that a human being can do so, I try to be absolutely even-handed. So the adoration that one would read about in the chapter on Baha'u'llah is no more and no less than the reader would find in the chapter on Moses or Jesus or Muhammad. So I try to present these great figures of history. I am a believer in them, but I try to present them absolutely as even-handed as I could possibly do. Since my book is called The Divine Curriculum, I also have a section of the book where I explain what actually curriculum is. I ended up, as the years went by, I got a master's degree in curriculum and instruction. My actual professional field is education. I wrote a few words here about what curriculum actually is. And so the reader will understand that what I'm talking about when I talk about a divine curriculum. Then comes the actual structure of the argument. First off, there's a discussion of the meaning of the oneness of God. Do we all have the same God? certain characteristics of God, like he's personal, he's prayer hearing and prayer answering. God is the God of history and that there are infinite worlds of God. And I also address some of the misunderstandings about God. Then we get into the question of the actual divine design, why the creator creates, the purpose underlying all of creation. And if you know why he's, God creates and then his purpose is for creating, then it becomes pretty easy to understand what he actually then goes and creates. And it turns out that amidst the wonderfulness of the vast universe, human beings have a very special and unique status because we are more than just physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well. We have a soul and we were created with the purpose of knowing and loving and choosing God. This whole section of what the creator creates is really a description of God creating human nature. And then we go into talking about who the divine educators are and how they fit together. And then the book concludes with a discussion about if the messengers of God are teachers in the school of God, which is all of creation. And then we understand like from our regular schools that the curriculum advances from one grade to the next. What actually does it start to look like to stay current with the divine curriculum, not to be stuck in the past, but always to be moving forward, as Baha'u'llah says, in ever advancing civilization? The discussion of the school analogy is revisited 
And then we talk about what's the goal of all of this. And it turns out that we're supposed to be yearning for truth. Individually and collectively, we're supposed to be becoming reflections of God on earth, establishing God's kingdom on earth, and becoming people of discernment, spiritual discernment, so that we can tell truth from falsehood and beauty from ugly and right from wrong. And so we become this spiritual and virtuous civilization. And that's how the book ends. This volume was an overview of the different messengers. Eventually, when I get to publish volume two, that will be on Abraham and Moses specifically. And volume three will be on Jesus. Volume four will be on Muhammad. Volume five will be on the Bab. And volume six, the series will conclude with volume six with Baha'u'llah. So the first volume is this overview of how the process of religion actually has worked throughout history using the framework of the divine curriculum to explain all that. And then the subsequent volumes are the individual divine messengers discussed in detail what they taught, what they contributed to humanity, their stories, and their sacrifices. So I'm speaking with Edward Price, author of the book set, The Divine Curriculum. He's published his first volume, which is called Divine Design. You've prepared a reading for of an excerpt or two, have you not? I did. So why don't you present the first excerpt? Okay. The first excerpt is in chapter 11, where we're discussing the question, does everyone have the same God? I distinguish the questions like, do we all believe in the same God? It's not actually the same question of do we have the same God? What we believe is in your mind. It's inside your brain. But whether we have the same God or not is actually a question about objective reality. So this chapter is focusing on do we have the same God? And, and frankly, whether you're a believer or whether you're an atheist, there is an answer to that question, whether we know it or not, or whether we agree on it or not. There is an answer to it. It's the answer that's out there in reality. It turns out, however, that whether or not we have the same God is a subject of great controversy among human beings. One of the things that is a common misconception today in today's world is that the figure or the being, I should say, whom Muslims refer to as God, that is to say Allah, is somehow something other than the God of Jesus or the God of Moses. This is a tragic misunderstanding, unfortunately. During the research for my book, I came across a really interesting story that illustrates how, how much of a misunderstanding it is. What it has to do with some of the disputes about the commonality of God, which occur in the most unexpected ways. So this is on page 98. What would you say if I told you that the Roman Catholic Church was currently fighting to secure its legal right in Malaysia to use the word Allah in its Malay editions of the Bible. Impossible? Hardly. According to the BBC, New York Times, and the Catholic News Agency, in 2009, the government of Malaysia seized thousands of Bibles which the Roman Catholic Church was importing into Malaysia. 
Evidently, centuries ago, since the Malay people are predominantly Muslim, the common word for God became Allah in the Malay language. Reflecting this change in the local culture, the Bible supplied by the church used the word Allah for God throughout the text. The government, however, under the influence of some extremist Muslim factions, is seeking to take possession of the word Allah and to claim that only Muslims have the right to use the word Allah as their word for God. The church objected to the seizure of their Malay language Bibles and claimed that they had as much right to use the word Allah as the Muslims. A court case ensued. When a lower court said the Roman Catholics could use the word Allah in the Bibles, several Christian churches were firebombed or vandalized by angry protesters. In 2013, an appeals court overruled the lower court. One magazine commented, whatever the Malaysian judiciary ultimately decides, it will not stop Christians in the Arabic-speaking world and in countries where Arabic influence has been strong from calling on the name of Allah. Go into any traditional church in the Middle East and you will hear the chant, Kudasan Allah, Kudasan Al-Kawi, Holy God, Holy and Strong. Determined to assert their constitutional right to use the word Allah, Catholic spokesmen promised to continue the case with further appeals. The fact that the extremists are trying to take ownership of the word Allah, and the fact that the plaintiff in this case is the Catholic Church, tells the reader all he or she needs to know about disputes concerning the commonality of God. So I'm speaking with Edward Price, author of the volume set, The Divine Curriculum, and he's reading from his first volume that he published called Divine Design, and he just read an excerpt. So, Ed, why don't you uh, read the second excerpt that you picked? Okay. So, let me set this up for you. The Orthodox Christian point of view is that Jesus is the only incarnation of God. Now, we could refer to the incarnation as also manifestation of God. There's different terms for the same phenomenon that has occurred. But the traditional dogmatic position of the churches, I'm not saying what every individual Christian believes, but of the orthodox positions of the churches that they belong to, is that Jesus is the only time that the incarnation has occurred. But the question is whether or not God could or would or has ever accomplished the incarnation in other places in other times. Let me see what's the best place to start here. Yes, the doctrine of single incarnation and finality ignored a key fact stressed repeatedly throughout the scripture. God is not prohibited or prevented from sending someone of lower rank or even the same rank as Jesus to speak for him. He can, if he wishes, send Jesus again. The religious leaders who are strongly invested in their views to the contrary might take exception. 
But that doesn't change the fact that no power exists to stop God from doing it again and again in other times and other places, if that is what he wishes to do. In purely logical terms, affirming that Jesus is the incarnation of God does not negate the possibility of other divine incarnations. Logically, affirming X does not necessarily require the denial of Y. God is not prevented by anyone or anything, not even by his own statements, from representing himself in the world any way he wishes and as often as he wishes. Consider this thought experiment. Recently, Pope Francis mused about whether or not the Catholic Church could embrace and baptize Martians if they came to earth and asked to be baptized. Who are we to close doors, he said. To be fair, Francis was making a more down-to-earth point about inclusiveness here on earth. But assume for a moment that there are Martians, that they do have a spiritual nature, that they are intelligent, that they are in need of a savior, and that they would want to be saved. Does it make sense that a gracious, loving, and super intelligent God would make them struggle alone for long centuries, keeping them waiting until they had technologically advanced enough to travel among the stars, on the remote chance that they might eventually find some other more divinely favored intelligent species living on some other world that had already received its savior in order to learn that this savior, Jesus, was their savior too? How would they ever attain such a level of civilization in the first place without the aid of their own divine educators? Wouldn't they deserve, as much as we do, a savior of their own kind sent to them on their own world? Consistent with the real spirit of John 3.16, if God created these Martians and so loved their world as he loved ours, wouldn't he, at a time of his choosing, send them a savior of their own? just as he did for us? Never mind the favorite theological minutia about whether that Martian savior would be Jesus in a Martian body or some other personage in a Martian body or of a higher or lower rank than Jesus. We can leave those otherworldly details to God. The essential point is that if the Martian civilization was peopled with creatures who had a soul, knew God, loved God, chose God and built a civilization dedicated to God, wouldn't God take care of them just as much as he has taken care of us? Regardless of their savior's standing in heaven relative to Jesus, wouldn't the Martians be just as deserving of an incarnation as we are on earth? If we can accept the idea that God could and probably would send an incarnation of himself to the Martians who are equally in need of a savior, why is it difficult to think that God might have already done the same thing here on earth at different times and different places? Why is it difficult to accept the idea of multiple incarnations on earth when there are historic, qualified, and tested individuals already known to history who have made credible claims to such a high station? So Edward Price is reading from his book, 
the Divine Curriculum, his first volume set called Divine Design. So, Edward, not only mm-hmm. are you an author, but you are also co-producer and co-writer of the film called The Gate. Yes. Uh, why don't you tell us about the film? The full name of the movie is The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith. It is focused on the ministry of the Bab, who was the forerunner of the Baha'i Faith. Most of the time we we Baha'is refer to Baha'u'llah as the founder of the Baha'i faith. But it's actually more accurate to refer to the Bab and Baha'u'llah as twin founders of the Baha'i faith. So this movie is about the story of the first of these two figures, the Bab, which his name means the gate. He was a, a messenger of God, a divine educator in his own right, revealing the divine verses giving laws and teachings for humanity. But at the same time, he was the herald and forerunner of Baha'u'llah, hence our description of them as twin messengers of God. Now, they both were figures in 19th century Persia, which is Iran today. The Bab was born in 1819, which means that next year, 2019, will be the 200th anniversary of his birth. The faith began in 1844 amidst a worldwide expectation that was going on in the United States, in Europe, and in other parts of the world where messianic expectation was very, very widespread. This messianic expectation was quite alive and active in 19th century Persia as well. The Bab, amidst this milieu, announced himself to be the promised one that everybody was looking for. He was a merchant, not a clergy or religious leader, but he seemed to possess innate knowledge and incomparable virtue and holiness. In May of 1844, he declared his mission to his first follower, whose name was Mullah Hussein, and thus begins the history of what we now know is the Baha'i faith. The movie tells the tumultuous story of his career. The receptivity of the population was intense. Tens of thousands of people converted to the movement very, very quickly. They found his teachings about education, about the empowerment and emancipation of women, about the unity of the religions of the world, They found his teachings about moral excellence and virtue and the highest ethical standards and the purity of worship and the independent search for truth. They found these teachings uplifting and inspiring, and they embraced in very, very large numbers uh, his movement. Well, it's been the history of religions since time began that the newest religions, as they enter into the world, always encounter opposition and persecution by the existing orthodoxy of the day. In Persia, it was Shiite, Muslim was the state religion, and the clerics and the government, they teamed up and they fought against this religious movement, which was sweeping the country. In the end, tens of thousands of Babis, as they were known, were massacred and the Bab himself was was put to death. 
Our movie tells the story of the, his meteoric career, about his magnetic effect on the people that came to know him, and the beauty and wonderfulness of his teachings. The movie is a documentary. It's about an hour. It tells this heroic story of not only the Bob, but his followers. I'll tell you one more little interesting feature. In the Baha'i faith, the divine messengers or the divine educators, also referred to as manifestations of God, are considered to be figures of incomparable holiness. It's the Baha'i teachings and out of a sense of reverence and respect for these figures that they are not to be portrayed by any human actor on screen. So this entire movie tells the story of the Bob, but the Bob is not portrayed on the screen. And we had to figure out as filmmakers how to do that and still have a enlightening and engaging and interesting storytelling experience as well. So I'm speaking with Edward Price, co-producer and co-writer of the film The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith. Ed, I, I wanted to say that Islam also has the same teaching. So, it does. Yes. That's correct. And the other uh, thing I wanted to say was that mm -hmm. I really encourage those not familiar with the life of the Bob to really see this film because, as you mentioned, Ed, during the mid-1800s, specifically 1844, there was right. specific religious groups that were looking for Christ to return on the clouds and was so disappointed when it didn't happen. And as they were looking up in the sky... There was this man whose life couldn't be more parallel to the life of Christ in his age and his set of disciples and in his miraculous martyrdom. And so I really strongly recommend that those folks had, who have not heard of or are not familiar with the life of the Bob, that they come and see your film. You know, it's very, very interesting, a couple of things. First off, the movement in the United States that was most prominent in this millenarian fervor. They were called the Millerites. Their leader was a gentleman by the name of William Miller, who's an interesting scholar and preacher in his own right, very worthwhile studying. The website for the movie is called thegatefilm.com, all one word, thegatefilm.com. And you can also find The Gate Film on Facebook our social media campaign has launched, and we also encourage people to contact us through our website if you're interested in hosting a screening in your community. The company making the film, Spring Green Films, would be thrilled to be able to work with interfaith communities or any other interested groups that would like to host a screening, and of course the Baha'is too. Well, Ed, I really want to thank you for telling us about your book, The Divine Curriculum in Volume 1, Divine Design, and your new film that you are co-producer and co-writer for, The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Edward Price, author of The Divine Curriculum, which you can find on Amazon.com. You can find out more about the film, The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith, by going to the website, thegatefilm.com. 
You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Shining from the Persian sky The people are awaiting To hear the author's fame And help us all proclaim The greatest name Come on all you ladies And let love adorn your face For now it has been written That you take your rightful place a bird with only one wing Surely will be lame And help us all proclaim The greatest name Has given men a choice And the hearts of desert people Surely will see rain Help us all proclaim The greatest name
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.